From Zhou Enlai to Wolf Warrior Diplomacy, what makes China's diplomatic corps tick? To discuss, we have Peter Martin of Bloomberg on the show. He's the author of the recent China's Civilian Army, The Making of Wolf Warrior Diplomacy, a clear candidate for one of my China books of the year. Co-hosting with me today is Jason Zhou, a current Swordsman Scholar. So, Peter, um, I guess, first of all, I'd be interested in wondering why you actually focused on writing on the foreign ministry, um, given that it's not usually considered one of the stronger and more important um, Chinese uh, government organs. Yeah, um, it's a good question. And it's true. It's a slightly weird topic for a book. But I uh, so I had I had this like general idea that uh, I wanted to write a book at why China struggled to communicate with the world. Um and, you know, obviously that was prompted by this, like, moment in 2017 where there was this apparent kind of huge opening for China to to step into this this role that the U.S. was vacating globally. And to some extent it did, right, it, with the Belt and Road and military modernization and those kinds of things. But when it came to, like, persuading others and winning friends, it just clearly didn't manage to step into that void. Um, so I kind of wanted to ask that question. And I guess because I was working in Beijing and attending foreign ministry briefings and talking lots to foreign diplomats, I, I kind of became intrigued by like how Chinese diplomats like uh, help, might help to answer that question. Um, and, y- you know, particularly because they have to like uh, inhabit these two worlds at the same time, right? There's the the kind of closed, secretive, paranoid world of Chinese politics. And then there's the relatively much more open cosmopolitan world of global diplomacy. And so I, I figured that it would be kind of interesting to, to delve into people who had to simultaneously work both of those worlds and, um, and, and, and figure out kind of a safe way to walk the line between them. Well, Delve, you did reading over a hundred memoirs. Um, Oh, my God. Uh, It really (laughs) shows, which is fantastic. Like, the first thing I do when I get a book about China is I look at the footnotes, and if there are no Chinese um, uh, sources, I, like, tend to put the book down. Um, But your book is chock full of them, uh, though I imagine it was a real slog getting through a lot of it. You know, what what kept you going um, in this quest where there are sort of, like, moments of joy or turning points that you were, like, looking forward to in in every one of these books that... um, yeah, I mean, I guess you get better at like reading the material, right? Like it's it was a it was a real slog at first, and then like the the vocabulary starts to get quite repetitive, and uh, so 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 it gets it gets kind of easier. But yeah, like you know, I I think that there is I one of my like strong biases uh, in like China studies, I guess, is that uh, still now even under Xi Jinping, there is a a huge amount to be gained from reading um, original Chinese sources. And I think that's true of like any topic, whether you're looking at economic planning or, you know, diplomacy and military affairs. And so I just uh, strongly assumed that that would be true of this topic and and try my best to throw myself at it. And um, uh, yeah, I guess my like slightly obsessive personality just kept wanting to keep going and uh, and work my way through them I, I i didn't finish them there are there are dozens that um that i never got to i've got a list somewhere uh in the bowels of my phone um if anyone's interested in in completing that task yeah so what was what was your like selection process uh um for for who ended up uh making it on your on your bedside table I, I I wasn't I wasn't particularly sort of systematic about it i mean i guess i guess the whole time i was trying to build up this like this story that went from 49 or even before 49 till now. And so, so each time I picked up a book, I was just, I was looking for something that like would, would help to fill in gaps, whether that was like, Oh, you know, I haven't, I haven't read much on China's presence in Latin America. So I better read a couple of uh, uh, books that are going to answer that. Or like, you know, I'm feeling a little bit light on the eighties, you know, like lots of them, um, tend to be tend to have like a lot of them have like very lengthy cultural revolution um treatments which is which is great but often but you know they'll kind of skip over the 80s because like the narrative tends to turn to kind of and then everything got better and china opened up and my you know my life improved and 
but you, but you kind of you kind of want to know which is true but you you kind of want to know like okay well, what was happening like inside the bureaucracy and uh how did that impact your life and how did that impact the way that people talked about china um so you know li- little things like in the in the 90s chinese diplomat in the early 90s chinese diplomats found that on visits to places like cuba they were getting questions about so so how does the china model work and and they had only ever been in kind of um we need to learn from the world mode right since economic opening started but but that was like a little taste of 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 what it was like to be from an economically very successful country and it was new for them and so moment i i I really found a lot of pleasure in sort of discovering moments like that and that kind of kept me going i guess yeah um one more on these books like is there anything particular about the genre of chinese bureaucratic memoir as opposed to you know western diplomats or politicians talking about their lives that struck out to you i actually think it's like more a question of like rank um if you read memoirs by like junior western diplomats they're also like not especially well edited they're quite repetitive and you know when you get to very senior people they're either ghostwritten or at least they're working with a high profile publisher who's edited them really well i'd say that's that's kind of true of the chinese language memoirs as well like the junior people the content tends to be uh a lot more dry and then obviously in in china you have the the censorship factor as well um so uh you know my understanding is that none of the senior people actually get to write their own books they Mm. they feed into a um a process with state-owned publishers where they kind of talk through the content that they'd like to include and then there's committee of people that produce the book in their voice for them um so you know that's that's kind of pretty uniquely chinese and 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 and, and to be clear like it's not like when you're reading through these books they're useful from page 100 to 300 what you're really doing is like skimming through pages kind of eliminating content and, and and finding like the one or two little nuggets of information that are going to be helpful for you yeah yeah, it's interesting because when you started that answer, I thought it was like a proxy for like actually the best, the most like, you know, successful diplomats in their careers are the ones who are like most thoughtful and, you know, have the most to say. Uh, but it may, may not be the case if they just got the ghostwriters. Yeah, I mean, I th- I think also there's like um, this, the, the censorship thing, is, as you can imagine, like changes a lot like over time. So some of the books written in the 90s and the early 2000s are really quite thoughtful about um you know people where people are reflecting on the role of the state versus the market or like what does it mean to tell a true version of history and uh what does it mean to be a loyal communist party member and all of these things and and not, none none of them are dissidents right like they're they're kind of taking the official narrative of chinese history and and giving their own personal spin on it, but that's that's quite a bold thing to do in a system like China's, especially when you've you've um, you've been a part of the system for decades. And and you know, books that have come out more recently are, are kind of I, I I want to thank the motherland and the Communist Party for fostering my professional development and just 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 much more uh, close to kind of Xinhua copy. Um, but you know that that makes sense, right? Given China's political trajectory. Gotcha. All right. Let's take it back to uh, whoever to start with than, than, than Joe and Lai. Um, let's let's start a little bit with his personal backstory. I love this detail that you have um, where he was bullied as a kid um, because he moved from Jiangsu to Shenyang and everyone thought he was like uh, had this funny sounding southern accent, which was his first taste of diplomacy. Uh, but. You know, what happens from there in his life and, and maybe take us from uh, take us through the, the, the France years and uh, into the 30s. Yeah. So so he studied overseas and he had um, really quite a rich experience. You know, he spent time in, in France, Germany, Japan, a little bit of time in the UK. He, like uh, many other Chinese students, was kind of shocked and during his time in France in particular, the, the kind of state of French workers and the way that uh, that Western countries um, 
capitalist systems kind of worked in practice and that that helped push him towards um toward marxism and uh you know and and also of course during his his time overseas he watched china you know struggle to to make its case um at the Versailles conference uh he watched you know china china weak and humiliated and was was talking to other students um about that one more one more detail i want to i want to be sure not to 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 jump over is um when he's in france he gets his girlfriend a postcard of robespierre saying that someday we too shall meet together to confront the guillotine arm and arm um I, I had to look up the chinese word for guillotine uh 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 duan totai which is like just incredible <laughs> um but uh i don't know it's just any other thoughts about like the experience of, of of France for these folks? Um, you know, Dung included also spent some time there in the in the in the early years and how it sort of shaped this revolutionary generation's view of the world. I I think that they went to France um, expecting to see a vision of um, what a more sort of optimistic future might might hold in store for China, um, and so they went with with very high hopes. Um, and very open minds, you know. So yeah, you know, I think that he had this um, this incredibly optimistic vision of of what France might be like, um, and he expected it to be this kind of picture postcards of like what China's future could be. And you know, he was disappointed. Um, and at the same time, he he read incredibly widely, uh, you know, Bolshevik literature. He read British Fabian socialist literature, which is much more sort of gradualist in its outlook he read philosophy uh and 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 started to kind of meld together a worldview but but it was a worldview that was very much focused on like how do the chinese people help themselves and how do we use these tools which are embedded in marxism and 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 leninism to do that and became um you know wrapped up in in commit, very early communist party activities helped to found the um the Paris youth branch of the communist party and really kind of launched his his revolutionary career from that um what was his early relationship to Mao once he came back to China and how did it evolve over time yeah i mean it 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 started off from a position where Joe was the more experienced person he was uh far more knowledgeable about um you know, like the, the theory of revolution, he he early on was, you know, promoted inside the Communist Party, was given, during the first United Front, was given a very prominent uh, role at the, the Bangu Military Academy. And, you know, Joe was senior to Mao, full stop. Um, and, 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 and Mao kind of took on this role where, uh, you know, he was, he was advocating this, this vision of revolution which led by peasants and starting from the countryside which just seemed like out of you know to, to, to not fit with this like cosmopolitan vision of uh you know yeah. urban insurrection once and once you hang out in paris you don't want to be uh slumming it with the um uh, exactly. the peasants right <laughs> right but but you know but clearly the 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 massive setbacks that the communists suffered in the 1930s um left left the party really with no choice but to embrace that vision of Mao's and from you know there was this sort of gradual process throughout the the mid-30s where Mao came to eclipse Joe both as a as a military leader but then also as a leader of the the, the communist party itself particularly after the the Zuni conference and and by the end of the long march Mao had kind of um had consolidated that position and Joe had also made this decision where he kind of locked himself into a position of always being um you know second in command at, at best and uh you know as his this is one time official biographer says a loyal servant of the chairman um yeah and uh you know it, 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 he he clearly like suffered immensely at Mao's hands throughout much of his career but he did die of natural causes in the mid 70s and uh, that's a testament, I think, to his political acumen and and to the fact that uh, from a uh, just just from the 
perspective of like political survival in the People's Republic, he made he made a decision that made sense for him because he 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 did manage to keep his positions. Yeah, though you know, dying from untreated cancer because your boss doesn't let you go to the hospitals, like a you know, there 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 are degrees of of success, I guess. It's a pretty bad um, consolation prize, yeah, yeah. Um, a, a few a few points I wanna I wanna highlight about this. You know, first off, you you mentioned like his first job was in the military. Maybe not his first job, but like that were his formative year professional years were, um, you know, at Wampoa Academy and 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 you know working working with the army. And that, um, well, as we'll get into later, was was really formative for how he envisioned creating the foreign ministry. Um, and one more detail that I don't want to go under. Um, uh, unnoted, uh, Sidney Rittenberg, who deserves his own podcast episode, uh, a New York, uh, a Brooklyn Jew who shows up in, um, in, in, in communist China and kind of never leaves, uh, has this incredible memoir. Um, uh, one detail of which, uh, where had Joe crawling on a floor to show, um, Mao something on a map, which sort of reminded me of succession and hogs on the floor, um, bore on the floor. Bore on the floor, bore on the floor. Oh God, sorry. Um, you know who knew who knew that that show was reading um, uh, Sidney Rittenberg memoirs for for inspiration. But um, uh, you know, before we before we jump jump past the um, you know jump into the forties, uh, let's talk a little bit about um, sort of wooing Westerners in uh, in Yan'an. This uh, seemed to establish a, a pattern which was um, uh, repeated to pretty dramatic effect over the course of the PRC's history. Yeah, and. I mean, just to to go back and pick up on your your points about um, the military that that was like true for Joe on a personal level, but it was it was also true for um, communists everywhere. Like they sure. were they were looking for institutions that uh, provided a degree of just like uh, organizational discipline that could be taken and channeled towards these incredible readily radical goals for transforming society and um so you know, so joe was taken with it so was the communist party of china and and so were the bolsheviks and then you know cities were remade with these big squares at the center where military marching could take place you know the structures of communist parties were inspired partly by by the military and and so there was this whole kind of intellectual climate that went into Joe's uh, thinking about the PLA as a model for um, for Chinese diplomats to follow, um, but yeah, sorry, you were you were asking about yeah. about wooing uh, foreigners. Actually, let's let's do that. Let's 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 continue on that. Yeah. Um, so the the key characteristic that Joe wanted to to model was was discipline, um, and that was that was important. I think for um, for the PRC when it thought about putting diplomats out into the world for, for the reason I kind of mentioned before because of the 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 the, the radical difference between like the 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 place it, the political world they had to navigate at home and then the outside world um so at home they were focused on control of of information of um remaking society along these uh, these incredibly radical lines, and then and worried constantly that the foreign plots um, and foreign interventions might thwart those designs. And then they had to send diplomats out um, to speak to these countries, which they believe were they believed with some justification that were were plotting against um, China and, and and thinking of ways to undo the communist revolution. Um, and 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 they had to figure out a way to make that uh workable and kind of square that circle and so i think that's one of the reasons that um you know the the pla jumped out as a model of course also the people's liberation army had just led china to to victory in a civil war and so there was a great deal of you know they're kind of like bandwagoning on the pla's dom- domestic legitimacy um a little bit and i i think you know one of one of the analogies i make is that like it it was a little bit like the mission statement pinned on the wall of a tech startup you know it's this this kind of like messy organization really doesn't know what it's doing but you you kind of come up with this very clear set of of principles that you can drum into them again and again don't be evil or you know in the case of google or like uh in in the case of of the foreign ministry um 
think and act like the people's liberation army in civilian clothing. So there was this, this focus on discipline. And of course, uh, this, this message, uh, which wouldn't have been lost on any of the recruits of like political loyalty, right? Like the PLA, as we all know, is a party army. It's not a state directed army and that, uh, it's, it's, it's primary loyalty lies to the, the communist party's leadership. The foreign ministry does report into the Chinese state, but I think that, you know, that the point is that, um, the Chinese diplomats need to be loyal to the, the party, um, above all. And, you know, so in practice that meant, uh, following orders, um, with great precision, it meant asking permission before you act. It meant, uh, you know, re- once you had acted, you report back on what you've done in a very, very precise way. Um, so there was this phrase, uh, you know, there are no trivial matters in, in diplomacy, which was, was constantly um, drummed into people. Which is also objectively false. Uh, yeah, although if you spend time with, uh, with diplomats, you, 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 you get the sense that small incidents can be inflated into pretty big things. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it's kind of funny. It's like I, you, when you say that, it makes me think of the like how every year is a bad year for something because there's an anniversary, which like like will either say that it's a bad year for relations to get better or a bad year for relations. To right. Get worse. I mean, it's a, it's um, a trope. And I'm, I'm guilty know. of this, but it's a totally a trope in like China journalism. Right. Like, uh, you know, the, 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 the PRC is likely to be particularly jumpy during this month as preparations for X event take place because it's a sensitive year filled with political adversaries. And it's like, oh uh, yeah, what as as opposed yeah. to their usual like freewheeling approach and, you know, to- tolerance for <laughs> unpredictable <laughs> events. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, one uh uh fascinating sort of a cultural rink was this idea of doubling um where you kind of like can't go out alone also something that um the north koreans do i think i read somewhere um but there was this great um anecdote that you had um uh where you write the buddy system sometimes it's implanted sometimes its implementation was even comical when one trainee diplomat in vietnam was asked on a date by a local woman in 1961 he immediately reported the invitation to his superiors the embassy earnestly researched the woman's request and eventually ruled that he could go on a date as long as four other Chinese students accompanied him. He didn't get a second date. Um, <laughs> not sure there's much more to say on that. Uh, uh, or, or, or yeah. So, so Peter, like where did this doubling idea come from and how does it, how does it sort of like, it, it, how does it sort of feed into broader themes of how um, the foreign ministry? Yeah. Wanted, it, wanted and to so this, itself? this is one of the, the, like the types of weird questions that kept me going with the memoirs because it, it took me ages to, to track down where it had come from. Um, and, uh, you know, it was quite a long way into my research that I think, I think it's Ji Chao Ju's memoir says that, uh, it was a rule dating to the cultural revolution, uh, instituted by which which turned out to be just like completely inaccurate but that was my working assumption for a long time <laughs> um until i read um i references to it in the 50s and then i was like okay so it's it's much earlier than that but i'm not sure exactly where it comes from my my understanding is that um this this was an idea that joe and Lai had in 1949 and it was first implemented in the Moscow embassy by Wang Tiaxiang, um, as China's ambassador there, um, and had been an incredibly important figure, um, in the communist party kind of in earlier decades, a very senior, well-established, um, not just Chinese diplomat, but Chinese politician and, and, and revolutionary. Um, and he, he insisted that as he walked around Moscow, um, he was accompanied by someone else to, to make sure that there was no question of him leaking secrets um, or, you know, or, or doing anything improper. Um, even in the Soviet Union, right, which is supposed to be at this stage such a close friend of, of the PRC. Um, and it was something that was implemented in, in Chinese embassies um, across the world and has survived right up till today. The, the implementation has been kind of like spotty and imperfect and has tended to be 
less closely followed at times when um, China's political system has 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 been uh, a little bit more open, um, and and you know civil society and media and other things like that have have been given some leeway. So in the in the nineties and the two thousands, there certainly were lots of cases, and you can speak to you know former U.S. and, and European and other diplomats who would go out for coffees with Chinese diplomats on their own and and hang out but 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 right but you know they they were doing that knowingly kind of breaking this this rule um but uh, but under Xi Jinping this this buddy system has been um implemented with extraordinary zeal as you would expect it's very much in fitting with the rest of the the Xi project and Chinese diplomats in their early 30s going overseas to England or the US to do study abroad programs have been instructed that you must strictly implement the in 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 Chinese it's called the two people walking together rule and Tongxing and uh, you must strictly implement that rule um, wherever you go anyway, and you can you yeah. can imagine that how far yeah. you know g- given how much of like the university experience is about talking to other people and like learning from your peers and stuff how like how inhibiting um, that must be but. But, you know, that's that's the demand yeah. that's uh, that's being put out there. So so in Red Roulette, there's this moment where this um, Desmond Shum, like in his youth, is like running around Shanghai with his like hands, you know, holding hands with his buddies. And it's like the best time of his life. And he like spend the rest of his life like looking, searching for like real friends. And it's kind of funny thinking about this as like a like a like a horrible flip of that is like, no, like this diplomat is just your best friend, but also could like ruin your life and report you for, um, you know, like talking to the wrong person or like dating someone without approval or. I mean, one of, one of the things that like really, um, you know, cause, cause you read, you read this stuff in the memoirs, right. But then you want to go out and like ask people like, so how does it feel? Like what, what was, what's it like to work in a system like this? And, and oftentimes like the the answers you get are really surprising and so in the case of the buddy rule i just assumed you know i talked to western diplomats who said like oh i I feel sorry for them it's really embarrassing for them that they they have to show up for coffee with two of them and you know and, and, and i guess that was kind of my like assumption as well but but when you talk to chinese diplomats yeah. about it or former diplomats they say well no no i really like the rule because like it protects you and, uh, you know, so that like, yeah. if, if there is a leak or something goes wrong, you have someone to vouch for you that like, it wasn't you and, and, uh, you, you, you get to maintain your, your sort of sense of innocence, which I guess shows just how, um, like radically different the, the incentives for individual behavior become in a system like this. Yeah. Well, I mean, the other buddy system that, um, folks are probably used to is cops, right? And that that certainly happens in the West. And, you know, there's there's a rationale behind like, okay, like it's easier to arrest one person if there are two people there. But you also have this sort of like omerta um, dynamic, um, which has been sort of exposed um, for all its um, uh, nastiness. I don't know. Any other buddy systems you can think of? Militaries use it um, occasionally, like military attaches. Um, I think in 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 countries where there are worries about espionage, we'll we'll often go out and meet with people um in pairs so like you know and and and, and of, like every diplomatic service um puts restrictions on foreign contact or or reporting requirements on foreign contact um so there's there's kind of a sliding scale it's just that like the yeah. prc is way further along that scale than most countries so y- you brought up this startup idea um and i want to take us back to the early years of the foreign ministry um you know there, there are these great like Eliza Doolittle type stories. Um, could you share some of those uh, of like of these of these diplomats, um, many of whom did not speak any foreign languages, uh, trying to figure out how, you know, trans- making the transition from like guerrilla to, um, you know, party goer, jazz listener. Um, what, yeah, what was I, that like and what were some of the hijinks there? I mean, so. So like on the on the junior side in the ministry, like most of most of these diplomats had had never been overseas they might have never met or have barely spent any time interacting with foreigners then speak foreign languages and at the senior level uh, uh mao and joe very deliberately picked uh almost exclusively there were some exceptions 
like wines are selling in, in, in Moscow, but almost exclusively um, full of PLA generals to act as ambassadors. And, and these people have been fighting an underground guerrilla war for the last couple of decades. Like they were the last people you were going to send to, you know, cocktail parties to, to hobnob with people. But, but, you know, that was the new task. Many of them were, were very unhappy about it, incidentally, and really fought in some cases to get themselves um, relieved of foreign ministry duty and sent back to the PLA. But, you know, so the, pr- the process of like educating yeah. these people. Of course, because like, you know, the, the cushy capitals were not the places that recognized China in the early years. Right. Right. Uh, you know, I, I think I think China's first ambassador in Poland, I want to say, like, you know, his his desk was uh, was crafted from a door stuck on top of two bits of wood, you know, like. This, these were not these were not cushy places. Speaking uh, of startups, that's what that's what Jeff Bezos did, right? You know, there's a real right. thread here. <laughs> but um, you know, so so the the process of getting these people ready to go overseas is in, in, incredibly daunting, right? And um, the the message uh, and, and and Chinese diplomats found themselves you know there are examples from 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 hungary and also from moscow where they just kind of found themselves sitting around idling in the embassy because like they didn't really know what they were supposed to be doing as diplomats and 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 they went out and consciously kind of uh have you know have meetings with um with soviet the soviet foreign ministry and, and other diplomats from the eastern bloc and took notes on okay so what do diplomats in an embassy do and like how do you do reporting and like how do you conduct a meeting and uh they sent these notes back to beijing and they were gradually kind of compiled into training materials for for diplomats going overseas so there was that kind of like official side of getting them trained up but there was also this like um how how do you stand how do you eat how do you make small talk and so they kind of they held like mock diplomatic receptions for for some of these these people in in uh in beijing where they wore uh western suits for the first time in their lives um they were taught to hold a knife and fork which they found you know it, it like incredibly challenging and 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 bewildering in in many cases and were instructed on like what kind of questions do you ask to keep conversation going and what do you avoid and and actually these these lessons lasted for a long long time you know um Li Zhaoxing who was China's foreign minister in the uh in the late 90s early 2000s um I recalled being told you know like don't eat your food too noisily um which really like he found um he found insulting at first and then he realized that like oh yeah i kind of do slurp my noodles and maybe this is a good lesson um that stuff's like, like obviously the, um, faded right over time they don't need yeah. to teach that stuff now but it lasted for a long long time yeah i like the like don't hoard food at a buffet thing which is you know definitely still relevant um it's still, it's still kind of relevant for me actually maybe i should take some of these yeah. lessons yeah China Talk would very much appreciate your support. Signing up for a recurring pledge on Patreon at patreon.com slash chinatalk or via the substack at chinatalk.substack.com helps offset the hours of research time and editorial support needed to produce each episode. Making a pledge of $7 a month will earn you an ad-free feed alongside my personal undying appreciation. Thank you so much. So so you have this, this contrast between, on the one hand, you have these diplomats trying to ingratiate themselves with the West, win over... Um, recognition from from Taipei to Beijing, um, but you also have all these internal tensions. Um, take us up, uh, Peter, through the anti-rightist campaign and and what the sort of first first purge did to uh, the foreign ministry and its international ambitions. Yeah, I th- I think there was this um, sort of real loss of of innocence, right? Like I I talked about how the system was set up to um, help diplomats. It's kind of two worlds. Um, and, uh, it, it, it did that until the, the line moved, um, as, as Mao, uh, decided that like the political system wasn't moving in a direction that he, he liked. And, um, 
you know, in, in, in actually in many political systems, like for when, when domestic clampdowns happen or, or, uh, you know, domestic sentiment kind of moves towards xenophobia and, and nationalism, diplomats are some of the first groups that get blamed because they're the ones meeting with foreigners all the time. Um, and that's especially true of, uh, a system like China's where, um, you know, you're not only you meeting with foreigners, but you're as, you know, if you're doing a job properly, you're also like whining and dining them and having deep conversations with them and talking about their views on politics and then reporting those views back to Beijing. And any one of those moves can be interpreted as, um, you know, a slight of China's leadership or a, a mark of disloyalty. And so a lot of people who were who were just doing their jobs um, found themselves kind of on the wrong side of of Mao and of of Chinese politics, and it was a it was a pretty scarring experience. And you know, when you you read um, accounts of of Chinese diplomats who went through it, they they sort of talk about how um, you know the anti rightist campaign really uh, taught them the lesson that like you you keep quiet if you don't like the direction that things are moving in. And, um, uh, you know, that, that was true in the foreign ministry. It was true all across China's political system. And I think it's um, Boi Bo's memoir, um, Bo Xilai's father, who talks about how um, it was really the anti-rightist campaign that made the Great Leap Forward possible because everyone was afraid to to speak up. Um, and uh, it led to this just kind of dangerous uh uh pliancy i guess in inside the ministry so so i guess that like frustrations of the soviet union had been building for a long time and when mao i mean it was really mao that that kind of led this when mao started complaining about the soviets uh diplomats like Wang Jiaxiang and and others who had been dealing with the soviets for a long time kind of had these little lists of grievances in their heads about the ways that they had felt slighted or ignored by the Soviets, uh, the way that they felt like, um, you know, czarism still continued in the Soviet Union despite the Bolshevik revolution and, uh, you know, Russian nationalist chauvinism and all of these things had kind of built up. So there was frustration in the foreign ministry and and, and beyond that. And the, the split itself... Um, was was kind of, but because um you know China's relationship with communist countries and it was and is led by the state apparatus through the foreign ministry, but also of course through the party apparatus. So the the international liaison department of the Communist Party, the propaganda organs, um, all of these things also have this incredibly important role. Uh, in, in relation to the Soviet Union, just like they do um, with North Korea and to some extent Vietnam um, now. And so kind of all of those organs were were moved onto this kind of hostile footing where there was this, um, you know, series of of just increasingly bizarre meetings between the two sides where they would kind of trade ideological insults and question each other's purity and uh yeah i mean once we get to to 1962 uh you write about this great meeting where um kangsheng who is famously like the pretty awful human being security chief read a speech approved by beijing praised praised stalin as a good comrade and criticized khrushchev for calling the late dictator a bandit a gambler a despot like ivan the terrible a fool a piece of shit and an idiot one eyewitness crane said that the strange talks were difficult to even call negotiations. So, you know, once you're once you're staring, um, staring at the face of your um, uh, of your supposed diplomatic colleagues and just telling them that they are full of shit, um, it, it's a difficult thing to sort of into this world where, like, you're insulting people by by questioning their their communist credentials. But um, the relationship really, really fell apart um, there and was was also driven by things like distrust over whether the Soviets would help them out with their nuclear weapons program. And of course, um, questions about uh, major questions about the, the domestic direction that China took in the Great Leap Forward. But um, that it, on, on the diplomatic front, that kind of played out through, through like I said, party organs and then also uh, the foreign ministry. 
you know, we, we think Wolf Warriors were hard. I mean, this was really another uh, another level, even before the Cultural Revolution. Right. I mean, the, the talks between the two sides, it was a little bit like, you know, when you're just in a really toxic relationship and you finish an, ar- you finish an argument at like an 8 out of 10 and next time you argue, you pick up back from that position and crank it up to a 9 and it just continues in this horrible death spiral. And that's kind of how I think of the Sino-Soviet split. All right. So, you know, we, we got to cover it. Uh, the Cultural Revolution, um, maybe using the story of, of, of Zhang Bing as an, as an entree point for what happened to the foreign ministry during this time. Yeah. So she, she, I really loved her story. Um, and, and actually like this, she, she, she wrote one book and then she edited a bunch of others. Um, most of the content, there's this really like, um, one chapter that focuses on the cultural revolution is super useful and the rest of it is is like is really bland but she um was just kind of this like scrappy individual from from northeast china um who uh you know her husband to join the foreign ministry she didn't have much in the way of formal education um she wanted to join too and um she took her you know she got herself educated, uh, taking her newborn child to, uh, like many of the, the lectures that she attended. And I just really loved this. It was like a really, yeah, you know, Ch- China, it is best in some ways, right? This was someone who would not have had, uh, prospects otherwise, and was just able through, through sheer grit and determination to, um, to get herself into the foreign ministry and, and start this career, um, which opened up possibilities for her traveling the world and, uh, you know, leaving this, this village that she'd been born to in, in, in Northeast China and, and really changing her prospects. She was super excited about that. Um, and, and joined the ministry just as the cultural revolution was getting going and, and, and very quickly found herself, um, sent to, um, a uh a, a five seven cadre school you know one of these um schools that were set camps really that were set up for um for chinese officials to um teach them the ways of true proletarian marxism and and she uh, you know ended up go hungry watching ambassadors and 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 senior diplomats clean out the toilets and pull uh you know humans pulling plows instead of cattle and all of these kind of terrible things and that was that that was the start of her diplomatic career and she she like other diplomats you know as 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 the opening up to the united states happened with the kissinger and nixon visits she uh had a a, a couple of opportunities and, and and china started building ties with other countries too she had a couple of opportunities to go to Beijing and she, she realized that like she had learned nothing about international diplomacy. She felt like a complete, um, fraud. And she, she actually has this passage in her book, which I think was written in the mid two thousands where she says. So in 1971, the camps began to be dismantled. Zhang stayed on until 1972 when she fell ill and was sent to Beijing. A few months later, when she was assigned to train for a new job for the ministry, she felt like she had nothing to contribute. If they sent me back to the foreign ministry, what could I do, she asked herself. How can someone who can only shout slogans, write big character posters, and do manual work in the fields be a diplomat? By then, Zhang was 34 years old and six months pregnant. In a flash, six years had gone by, and the golden years of my life had pointlessly drifted away, she wrote. For her and many millions of other young Chinese, the Cultural Revolution had raised painful questions about the new society they'd been told they were building. So I, I love that passage and it was one of those moments like that was really worth waiting for in the memoirs um, where, where it was, there was this kind of like honest reflection and, and grappling with what it means to, to work in a system like China's. And it also uh, kind of changed my perspective both on, on Jiang's memoir and um, many of the others that I, I had looked at because a lot of them, uh, you know, they're filled with like boring meetings and stuff in the foreign ministry, but they're also lots of them filled with just like travel anecdotes, right? Uh, you know, my husband and I took ourselves off to 
this country and we, we were, saw the pyramids yeah and, and and those sections are like really lengthy and then it will you know there'll be a long digression on like this is yeah this is like egyptian history and did you know that there were the pharaohs and you know it's like really pointless and <laughs> and feels just it's just like really frustrating because it's like why on earth didn't editor let you put this stuff in your book but actually after after reading that section from Zhang, i realized that mundane as those stories are there's like a real beauty to them as well because these are people who never would otherwise have had the chance to travel outside of china and this was like their lifetime dream coming true and so of course they wanted to put it in their memoirs because this was you know their lives transformed um and uh so yeah, I mean, it, I still had to skip over those parts and I couldn't really include any of them in the book, but it, it did kind of like put into context like why people spent so much time recalling their, their personal travels. What then was it like for Chinese diplomats who were actually outside of China during this time? Uh, you mentioned in the book that a number of diplomats were recalled to China during the Cultural Revolution. Who was actually in charge of the embassies then? Um, and there's some amazing anecdotes you relate. One of the famous ones is about uh, fist fighting or outside of the uh, the Chinese embassy in the UK. Uh, but there's uh, a lot of interesting stuff that that went on during this period, to say the least. <laughs> yeah. So 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 embassies were left with um, you know kind of these skeletal um, kind of operations. Um, at one point, every single Chinese ambassador was back in Beijing, with the exception of um who was in Egypt um and so you you would kind of have like a few people almost exclusively men um so there were there were a couple of diplomats who reflected on the uh how Chinese embassies ended up feeling more like monasteries than um than embassies because it was just like a few men on their own unable to go and meet with foreigners outside for fear of of getting in trouble and really with with uh no clue what they should be doing and, and they would you know at this time like there was such intense like factional fighting in beijing inside the foreign ministry that that they would get one cable with a set of directions one day you know criticize deng xiaoping and you know behave in x way and the next day something completely contradictory and so they could tell that like um the that that something was going on but they 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 had no way of knowing um exactly who was on top and exactly what they should be doing and so um you know there were embassies where um uh diplomats painted uh Mao Zedong slogans in big red or gold letters um on the outsides of the buildings uh, where diplomats went out and handed Mao Zedong's little red book out in the streets. Um, quite a few embassies where people, um, you know, started growing their own vegetables because they felt that, like, um, maybe they'd be set politically safe if they, like, showed that they were contributing to production and being being workers um, rather than just, um, you know, uh, diplomats hobnobbing with with foreigners um so it was it was a pretty uh extraordinary uh atmosphere and, and and many of those left overseas were also the most um the most left-wing and um kind of ideologically extreme people as well and so when ambassadors were sent back overseas um many of them were pretty worried about facing these people um, and they didn't know if they were going to follow orders and uh, if they were going to be hostile so it, it, yeah it was a, it was a pretty extraordinary time yeah i mean it, it really goes to show the the sort of like it's like the political sort of damocles like hanging hanging over all of these diplomats where on the one hand you know what what you said in in your answer to your previous question of like these are the lucky ones in the sense that they get to explore the world, they don't have to live in like, you know, living in like living as like a poor diplomat in a rich country is very different than like, you know, being stuck in like, you know, like cultural revolution or, um, you know, great famine China. Um, but at the same time, the, the sort of fact that they had to live their lives attuned to all of this must have just been so sort of cognitively weird for these for for, for these folks to 
um, to um, to be so subject to what was going on at home while while being right. And, and you know, you had this situation where, like, you can't trust the information that's coming from Beijing. But then you also, um, you know, you don't really trust Western reporting on China either, p- partly because, like, from an ideological standpoint, you shouldn't trust it. Also, like, practically, you know, in the culture of evolution, like, no one had a clue what was going on. So it might not even be reliable. And there were these kind of amazing scenes as people tried to figure out um, the demise of the, the Gang of Four, where, like, Western media had no clue what was going on. There was a lot of conjecture. Uh, they were receiving these just wildly, um, you know, uh, contradictory messages for, uh, from from the foreign ministry itself. And I, I think it was the the embassy in Italy. Um, they kind of had this um, display up on the wall where they had created, you know, if you think of like uh, a, 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 a cop movie where the detective has like covered his a wall of his apartment with all of the clues and laid out a timeline and stuff. They had done like exactly that to figure out what was going on with the gang of four and whether they had fallen um, or not. It must have just been so bewildering. Yeah. I mean, you, you just get this in reading your book, you just get this sense of like stress um, that is really pervading these, these folks lives. Um, you know, once we, once we hit the anti-rightist campaign and, you know, uh, going through, uh, I guess, into the 1980s, which we will come to in our second episode uh, with 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 Peter coming to a podcast app near you. Um, we're going to leave um, leave today with the cliffhanger, uh, uh, Joe and, and and Kissinger meeting up in the early 70s. Uh, Peter and Jason, thanks so much for for coming on and looking forward to round two of this. Yeah, thank you. Me too. At Outro Music today, we have 不知冬天 by